when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. This week, I'm talking to Scott Belsky, chief product officer at Adobe. And I really like talking to Scott, so I think you're really going to like this episode. Now, Adobe is one of those companies that I don't think we pay enough attention to. It's been around since 1982, and the entire creative economy runs through its software. You don't just edit a photo, you Photoshop it. Premiere Pro and After Effects are industry standard video production tools. Pro photographers all depend on Lightroom. We spend a lot of time on Decoder talking about the creator economy, but creators themselves spend all their time working in Adobe's tools. And Adobe is in the middle of announcing new features for all those tools this week. It's the company's annual conference, Adobe Max. So Scott and I talked about the new features coming to Adobe's products, many of which focus on collaboration and about creativity broadly. Who gets to be a creative, where they might work, who they might work for, and how they get paid. There's a lot there. Scott is also a big proponent of NFTs, non-fungible tokens. You've probably heard about NFTs, but the quick version is that they allow people to buy and sell digital artwork and keep records of that ownership on a public blockchain. The idea is to create scarcity for digital goods, just like physical products, to definitively say that you own a digital piece of art, just like you own a physical piece of art. Of course, the internet is a giant copy machine, so it's a little bit more complicated than that, but a lot of people, including Scott, think it's a revolution. In fact, Photoshop itself will be able to prepare an image to be an NFT very soon. I'm a little more skeptical, so we got into it. Scott and Adobe are also working more broadly on making sure it's easy to know where an image came from on the internet. After all, images get created and shared and re-edited and remixed, and it all happens so fast that sometimes it's hard to know where something came from and if you can trust that it's real. In 2019, Adobe announced a partnership with Twitter and the New York Times to try to fix that, to verify images, something called the Content Authenticity Initiative. I wanted to check in on that with Scott and see how it's connecting to the work Adobe is doing with NFTs. 
Scott and I talked about all of that. We also talked about file formats and the future of local processing versus cloud computing, the nature of creative work. We squeezed it all into an hour. It's a good one. All right, Scott Belsky, Chief Product Officer at Adobe. Here we go. Scott Belsky, you're the Chief Product Officer at Adobe and the Executive Vice President of Creative Cloud. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks for having me. It's been a while since we've talked. I've always enjoyed our conversations. We have a lot to talk about. This episode of the podcast is coming out with Adobe Max, your big conference. You're announcing a ton of new products there, including big features for Creative Cloud on the web. There's news about the content authenticity initiative. Yes. You're, you're very bullish on NFTs, which I really want to talk to you about. I have some big questions about just like the future of computing. I I was looking at this, I was like, man, I need like two hours, but we're gonna try to get it all in at once. The power hour. Yeah, exactly. But I wanna start with what I have come to think of as the decoder questions, the basics of how Adobe as a company works. Uh, I think Adobe is a company we take for granted in the best way. The products are ubiquitous, they are famous. They work, they, the entire industries depend on them, but I feel like it's a company we don't know a lot about. So just start with the basics. You're the chief product officer. How many people work on product at Adobe? Probably somewhere around the 7,000 person range fall within the creative organization of engineering product design that I oversee. And then there is, of course, a group of product organ- uh, a product organization, the digital experience side of the business, which I don't directly oversee. And the document cloud, which is the PDF kind of acrobat business. So, uh, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but we have quite a large product engineering and design organization at Adobe. When you talk about the difference between things you have to do in the future, trying to find the next turn, and then Photoshop, when I say entire industries are organized around some of your software, (laughs) like entire industries are organized around Photoshop, how do you manage the split between making sure that? product does what it needs to for its existing customers versus pivoting to what the next generation of customers might, might want. You're getting into my everyday drama right now uh, well, that this, I have to this deal is, with. This is the heart of Decoder. <laughs> I, find, I find it and I push the button. It's a great, great question. And there are various ways we go about this. So look at a product like Lightroom. You know, Lightroom now has two variants. There's Lightroom Classic and there's Lightroom for Creative Cloud, which is a more cloud-native photography organization and editing solution. Why did we do that? Because there was actually a legacy, incredible world-leading photography base that just couldn't imagine ever doing anything on the cloud and really wanted to make sure that that product took the path in its evolution that was more towards local, you know, on-premise kind of photography management. And we had to honor that base, but at the same time, we didn't want to constrain the next generation photographer that wants everything you know, at her fingertips on mobile, desktop, web, and doesn't want to even think about where the images are actually stored. And so sometimes we have to go that far and actually splinter and create two products. But what we also recognize is that what's truly empowering for our customers when everything works together. And so having uh, Photoshop come to iPad, you know, and now, as we've just announced, coming to web, but Photoshop is Photoshop is Photoshop. You open it anywhere, there's full fidelity, there's you know, truly you know, interoperable across surfaces. That's an important thing to deliver to our customer, and that's kind of a promise that we're uncompromising on. In fact, the reason why we can't port 30 years of features to a new surface like the iPad or the web on day one is because we just have to focus on the file 
format and the and and the fidelity and trustworthiness of the file itself because the PSD is kind of like an iconic format to your point that industries standardize on to some extent. So I ask every executive who comes on the show and maybe we can use the Lightroom example. How do you make decisions? How do you decide all right, we've got to actually split this product into two. It's really, you know, it'll sound cliche, but it's very much anchoring in the customer and understanding where they are going. So look back in the day of when Photoshop was used to make every website. And there was a subset of customers that were focusing so much on websites and only using a few specific tools in Photoshop to do it and struggled amidst all the, the rest of the power of Photoshop to be able to do that in a smooth and efficient way. And then products like Sketch came around that basically took those specific tools out of Photoshop and kind of flanked the product with a new product that was dedicated to screen design. You know, now we have Adobe XD. And of course, others have emerged in the space as well. Uh, that's an example of being very customer-centric. Now, we could have just said, oh, let's make Photoshop better and better and better and better for the screen designer. But what actually the customer was saying is that they don't want all the other stuff in there. <laughs> they want a vector-centric editing capability that vertically integrates prototyping. At the time, people were using third-party services to prototype the things that they made in Photoshop and places like Sketch. And so we had to listen and say, okay, we need a vertically integrated screen design solution. And then now that is collaborative by default, et cetera, and that's the playbook. And whenever we're sitting in a meeting and we're pontificating as people around a table, <laughs> I'm like, all right, got to end this meeting right now. Like, what are customers struggling with and how are their behaviors going to impact our roadmap? If you ask customers, they would invent a faster horse, right? Like, there's what customers want, which is pretty narrow problem solving for their needs right in this moment. And then there's the next turn, right? Like, I yeah. very much doubt a lot of your customers right now are saying, I need to mint NFTs to multiple blockchains, but I know that's on your <laughs> mind. How do you balance those two? It's another great question, and it's something that I think every leader of a company you know, like Adobe needs to be very paranoid about because it's very easy for us to build everything in the image of what we've done before. And you know, I'll ask myself this tough question since you're not asking it. Should XD have been on web by default in the beginning? Well, hey, listen, like, we have a customer base that was never willing to trade performance and precision for ease of collaboration. And when we went to customers and said, well, if we bring this, some of this stuff to the web, but you're going to have a bit of a laggy experience. And sometimes, you know, bandwidth is going to get in the way you want to do. And you're going to feel constrained by whatever happens to be the case at Verizon today. You know, they would have said, heck no, like, you know, give me the power and precision. And I want faster and faster and faster. And when Apple comes out with their new chips, I want it to be even faster. So the idea of going to the web was actually sort of crazy at first. And kudos to the companies that took the risk and also managed the years of frustration of customers, you know, because they weren't delivering on the performance side that was required to be in business. But now bandwidth is, you know, obviously is better and Browsers are much more sophisticated and partnering with our friends at the Chrome team and, and at, you know, at Microsoft at the Edge team, we were able to start to say, okay, what's the future of web apps and how can we actually take a product like Photoshop to the web and have that ease of collaboration coupled with performance? So it, it really does in some cases mean you know, having some burn the ship moments where you're like, okay, we are going to go all in on the web right now and we are going to make sure we nail this. But then again, it's back to the customer. It's knowing, you know, these are people who grew up in the age of Google Docs. They expect to be able to just share, you know, by clicking an icon. They don't want to have to send an email and have a version control issue from day one. The elephant in the room, you keep talking to the other companies that have gotten there first. Obviously, 
Figma is right there. They're a very successful company. They're a startup. They were web-based from the start. They now have a $10 billion valuation, I think. Adobe is a big company. Do you wait for the small company to come and prove out the idea? Was that, oh, man, we got to get there? Was that, was that a competitive pressure for you? Or was it, man, I had this idea, but we had to serve the customers first, and now we can get there because they've customers are using Figma, and they're saying, why aren't you doing this? Yeah, well, listen, and Dylan's a friend, and I met, met Dylan you know, when I was still an independent entrepreneur running Behance back in probably 2010, when he was actually first cracking imaging on the web, which was not doable, and that's where they kind of pivoted to, you know, to screen design and vector-based creation. I think that when you are a market leader, it is really helpful to make sure that, yes, you have to anchor on what the majority of your customers need, which is never something yet at the edge. You know, it's always what I was at the center. And the folks that were willing to withstand sort of frictions of web creation three to five years ago, it was a very small group of people. And so what I try to do is I have small teams exploring some of those things on the edge that may become the center someday. And then, you know, do we always wish that we had started some of those things earlier? You know, in some cases, yes. In some cases, no, because the technology's changed and pivoted so many times that it's almost easier sometimes to build on the modern stack today than to have started something three years ago that now you have to re-platform. So there's some advantage, I actually believe, that by beginning our web journeys more recently, we're going to be able to capitalize on some, some very fundamental new technology. The market signals itself, right? You know, everyone sort of elevates, hopefully, and this all serves the customers at the end of the day, everyone sort of elevates everyone else's game. What I like about the creative space right now is that there's so many new technologies coming in and so many smart people thinking, at the end of the day, this is going to serve customers, you know, regardless. So let's talk about the ultimate moving from the edge to the center, which is putting Photoshop on the web. Yes. That's part of the announcement at Max. It's Creative Cloud Web. Tell me what the thinking there, Photoshop is the classically heavy app. When all, well, the Verge reviews team does performance testing on, on laptops, we open Photoshop, we open Premiere. Bringing Photoshop to the web seems like a, a big deal. Illustrator's coming along for the ride. How does, that, how does that work? First of all, what we know is that every Photoshop workflow is a collaborative one to some extent. You know, whether you're doing it for a client, you're doing a project with a friend, whatever the case may be, you're sharing it with somebody. When you're sharing it with somebody, what do you want them to be able to do? Well, you want them to be able to review and comment on it which we wanted to do first out of the gate. Step number two is if they want to jump in and make a slight tweak or change, make a copy edit, whatever, do they really have to go back to you and ask you and then have more back and forth? Or can they just click in it and just start editing right away? And so the first phase that we're also launching you know, now is sort of a light level of editing, very non-destructive, you know, full fidelity, real PSD in the cloud, we're not bringing all the features on day one, but we really want to unlock like all those like basic edits that are just best done now in the browser with whoever you're working with. We just want to knock that out of the park on day one. Do you have a button where the boss can just make something bigger? <laughs> it's like the only oh, edit yeah. I ever did. The, the, the scale functionality is shipping in Photoshop <laughs> on the web. So, oh my goodness, we now are entering a generation of bigger logos as a result. <laughs> so you, you bring it to the web in this way to enable collaboration you were talking about files and folders and PSDs and radically different expectations that different generations of consumers have. Once you get the PSD in the, in the cloud, do you get to change that file format? Is that something where companies are now... It, it's a Pandora's box of opportunity, right? Yeah. You know, when you have a PSD in the cloud, you can allow people to access it across any device. You can have, allow anyone to collaborate on it with you. You can approach the world of co-editing where people can be in the same document at once. 
you can also do all kinds of fun integrations with third parties. I mean, imagine any image in the world that you're working on on any website, being able to right-click, edit in Photoshop on web, jump into a new tab, make a change, click save, and go back to where you were. What sorts of creativity will that unlock as people are sharing content on social media websites all day, or I'm publishing to your blog, you know, uh, an article and I need to kind of comp out something or add a layer somewhere, or add a little watermark. I mean, these things, it's just such an unlock for so many more people to enter the funnel and to be able to, you know, be outfitted with creative capability. When you think about the architecture of Photoshop historically, you've got a an app on your laptop that's running on a, a local Intel or now an Apple chip, an AMD chip. You've got a file. You're operating the file. You send the file places. What is the architecture of Photoshop on the on the web? Are you running that on obviously your data centers? Is it the same sort of x86 app that we're used to with the web front end? How does that work? It's all native in the browser. The client side, you know, work and the technologies we've leveraged that are kind of the the latest for you know web apps as you would know that you know see them any, anywhere else. And you know the team can give you more specifics, but we have really tried to make sure that as much is done on the client side as possible because performance is crucial, right? You know, this is one reason why the load time I've been trying to get down with the team is really the initial load. The first time you ever use Photoshop in the browser, we've got to like bring a lot local for you to be successful and, and be, be nimble. But then beyond that, you know, a lot of that stuff is happening locally and then the cloud's doing its job, you know, keeping things in sync and eventually you know, bringing a lot of the power of AI at your fingertips as well. I mean, already when we have masking and stuff like that, a lot of that is algorithmically or AI driven from the server side. And I think that's part of the future of creativity is, is allowing people to spend more of their time being creative in the exploratory process as opposed to the mundane, repetitive stuff that we do, like applying marching ants around hair all day. So I'm curious about that. When I think of a web app like Photoshop or anything else, really, I think, OK, I'm looking at the front of an app, but all of the heavy lifting is being done on a computer somewhere else. And that lets you bring that app to many more kinds of devices than you would otherwise have. I know a lot of designers use Figma. They literally work on Chromebooks, like pretty mid-range Chromebooks all day mm -hmm. because it's just a web app and they don't need a ton of local processing power. Are you saying that Photoshop will ne still need a bunch of local processing power? Well, Photoshop is being made to be able to take advantage of local processing power, right? Okay. But, you know, I think need is a good question. I mean, we want to bring Photoshop and some of these capabilities to everyone. We have tested on you know, some Chromebooks, certainly the higher-end Chromebooks, and are pretty satisfied with some of the initial results. But uh, there is the kind of headless Photoshop approach that we could have taken, which is basically streaming Photoshop yeah. from us running it in the server, which we did not do because we think that people need to be able to have agile local operations. I ask that because there's a big split in computing architectures going on. There mm -hmm. is the traditional Intel and AMD x86. There's Apple's new approach with its chips. And then there's a huge push to just move it all to the cloud. Maybe most notably in, in the video game industry where game streaming feels like the future and mm -hmm. then people still have really big, heavy consoles sitting in their living rooms because that future is not ready yet. When mm -hmm. you think about architecting your apps, that's three very different paths to go down. How do you pick between them? We are very much since the, again, edge and center here. So mm -hmm. at the center, we want to make sure that we bring the most powerful and creatively capable tools in the world to market. 
And so when it comes to the future of Photoshop on desktop and Premiere Pro and After Effects and all the Substance 3D and immersive products, et cetera, we are lockstep with Apple and with Microsoft on the absolute latest, you know, Apple Silicon and, and ARM chips because we need to make sure that we're always pushing that edge. Think about the types of things that people are rendering and creating these days. I mean, that's, I think we get we get really excited about all the collaboration stuff, which I'm about to talk about, yeah. but there is this need and that's why it's a cross-surface experience. There are things you want to do that are more collaboration driven. And then there are things where you're just like rock solid performance. And if I can wait five seconds for this to be done instead of three minutes, like all day, every day, I'm desktop, you know, desktop, desktop, and deeply you know, to the metal, right? I want to make sure I get all the juice. But again, like that, this is the insight on the website is that there is a new generation of people that are achieving their productivity as much through collaboration as they are through that performance stuff. The web is just ruling the world there. I, I do think that the companies that win will be able to bridge both. And that's very much our strategy is we want to make sure that sometimes you're just you want Photoshop, Photoshop, Photoshop on desktop, and you just want to have all the optimized capabilities for your chipset as possible. And then, and then you may want to open that on the web and do something with somebody else. Just a note here, Adobe followed up and clarified that the vast majority of edits in Photoshop on the web are, quote, performed locally in the browser for the best interactive response. The company added that a few operations like select subject and remove background are performed in the cloud. <laughs> that split between what happens on your computer and what happens in the cloud, getting fuzzier and fuzzier. Apple makes different kind of GPU decisions than the Intel side. Famously, they do not support NVIDIA GPUs, which are very popular. Mm -hmm. They have a different framework for GPUs called Metal. Now they've got an entirely new framework on their Pro machines, their new chips. How do you make sure when you're trying to address both of those customer bases that you're optimizing as close as close to what the hardware will, will allow as possible. Well, it kind of goes back to that principle of being platform agnostic. Like we do want to meet customers where they are. That being said, we partner with these hardware partners of ours to to make sure that we're fully utilizing and embracing what they're bringing to market. You know, and sometimes it uh, on one platform you leapfrogs another for a period of time and the other one leapfrogs them and you know people keep kind of doing that. But it's it's the customer's choice. I mean, we really want them to be outfitted with the very best power possible. And obviously, M1s have really exceeded our expectations when we first you know saw our products lit up on them and and did all the work to optimize them for the M1. So that's that's super exciting. Our customers on those devices are thrilled. In the new machines with Apple's new GPU structure, are you ready for that in day one, or is that going to take some time? We've worked with them, and we are going to have performance improvements for sure right out of the gate. And then there will be more coming. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the kinds of tools creators are using and the difference between using something like the built-in editor in TikTok versus Adobe Premiere Pro. We'll be right back. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. 
go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. All right, we're back with Scott Belsky. You and I have talked about this before. You spent a lot of time talking about collaboration and, you know, what businesses need as they grow. There's a pretty expanding gap between consumer creative tools and what I would now call enterprise creative tools. The most popular consumer tools are integrated directly into the distribution platforms, right? TikTok is a very powerful video editor, Mm -hmm. but it's also a huge distribution platform. The same for Instagram. Photoshop with web collaboration, it's expensive. It's it's rapidly becoming kind of an enterprise tool. And the tool sets are not evolving together, right? They're going in different directions because they have different constraints and different audiences. The way I would most simply phrase that is being great at TikTok does not make you great at Premiere. It, it will <laughs> teach you a lot of the language of video editing mm-hmm. and give you instincts, but it will not actually make you good at the app. How do you bridge that gap for the younger generation of creators? Well, our big bet is that the industry is moving and will and has always moved towards the side of being able to stand out creatively. And I, I actually shouldn't even use the word industry. I should just say society. Mm-hmm. People want to stand out. And uh, especially as we get kind of replaced by algorithms when it comes to productivity stuff, you know, we're all going to want job security through our creative stuff. And whether it's, you know, hosting podcasts or uh, writing or telling a narrative with data in a visually compelling way or whatever the case may be. Every small business needs to produce content. There's a new movement of template-based creativity tools out there where people just like take a template, edit it a little bit, and then post it on social media. I actually see the early signs of people starting to feel like they're being generic now. And again, people want to go further. They want to add more creativity. So our bet is that everyone's going to ultimately want to stand out. By the way, a huge amount of Premier Pro customers export for use in TikTok. Mm -hmm. Why are they doing that if they have the local video editor? Because they want to do something that people look at on TikTok and they're like, oh, how did they do that? You can't do that on TikTok, (laughs) you know? And I just think that that's, maybe it's part of the human condition. Maybe it's because it's the only thing we uniquely humans can do is like create and transcend what's been done before. And so we all have this innate desire to do that, to sell our products, to, to sell our ideas, to sell everything. That's where we need to meet the customers at. Now, I think your point is right, though. We can't just make enterprise tools in a sense. We can't make creative tools that require a huge learning curve. We have to make our products more accessible to more people. And so that's been a huge effort, both in Creative Cloud. What we've been doing is trying to increase, you know, make it easier to onboard, make it easier to learn, tutorials, learning, all that kind of stuff. 
But also, we are developing some stuff that we're going to talk about in the next few months that's going to reach a much broader audience and in, in, in a more you know, reimagined way that doesn't require any learning curve at all. And I think that's part of our mission for Creativity for All. Do you think that is just breaking out the tools? Like I think about content-aware fill, which yep. is a revolutionary feature of Photoshop. Yeah. It, is, it has just changed the landscape of photo editing in, in a real way. Mm-hmm. But to use it, you've got to know how to use Photoshop. And that's the sort of tool where you could democratize it and bring it out to other places. Do you do you think about it that way? Like there are certain powerful features that you should just understand how to use and that will ladder you into the bigger app and maybe a career. Listen, if I'm if I'm you know one of the billions of people that aren't Creative Cloud customers and I saw things like content aware fill and neural filters where with a little slider you can make you know change someone's frown or you can change the landscape into summer from fall to winter or whatever. If I saw any of that, I would want to have access to that without having to learn that tool. And so that is kind of my charge to the teams, by the way, is to say, hey, port some of this incredible, we call it Adobe Adobe magic internally, in a very easy to use, revolutionary interface form that everyone can access. And that's part of the challenge that you know, I'm alluding to that we're going to start to make a dent in you know, going into the new year. But we already are trying to do it, you know, in our in our products that you know you you see today. And you know, shame on us, right? I mean, we should have this success with everyone. Everyone needs it now. Is the point? Whereas, you know, ten years ago, not everyone you know was creating content on social <laughs> to make their business stand out. But now it's kind of like you know the creator economy is kind of the theme for this need. Did you see the? Um, there was a tweet about a guy who bought a business selling ramps for dogs to go up sofas. It's the whole uh-huh. dog ramps. I wanna, I'm going <laughs> to get course. him on the show. Um, Long tail customers. Uh, and he was like, I bought this business. It wasn't doing any social marketing. I just made some great videos and bought the ads. And now my business is like 300x. Right. And that's all market. Like the classic, the marketing made the business is yeah. right in there. Is that your lane? Is that that's the huge market is people with small businesses who see the marketing opportunity with social platforms. Then you make great content. It's worth it to pay for the tools in a way that, I don't know, teenagers might not think it's worth it to pay for the tools? Well, as I imagine kind of the, the Adobe of tomorrow, you know, I think that every student who's making a history report will want to make something, it's not going to be a printed Word doc anymore. It's going to be a visually compelling, animated, or you know, narrated and video type of experience. Every small business, right? And millions and millions of small businesses were started during the pandemic as people kind of left their old day jobs and said, okay, I want to pursue my passion now. From day one, it's all about the content you're representing across all these different platforms in different formats. And you want to test things. You want to like make it creative and different than your competitors. Where are you going to go, right? And then I think that for the big company even, you know, I think about that moment when the, when the lights went out during the Super Bowl and Oreo said you can still dunk in the dark. Like that was a marketing moment that happened within 30 seconds, and whoever did that, it wasn't a design team, right? Mm-hmm. It was some social media marketer who was empowered to just do it. And they needed to have the brand assets, the fonts, you know, all that stuff at their fingertips and just be able to execute and post it. That's going to be the case across every brand in the world, big and small. And again, like a company needs to accommodate that those workflows. So I, I look at Adobe, I'm like, well, we've got all the professional tools. We've got all that Adobe magic. We've got the collaboration services like Creative Cloud Libraries that make those fonts and assets available at your finger trips across mobile, web, and desktop. You know, and then we're going to have all these more consumer-focused creativity applications that make things more accessible to more people. 
but it's all in a unified system. Like to me, that's the creative operating system of the future that people will need. And I just feel like in that perspective, Adobe's in its early days. Do you think about making some of these features just filters and other people's apps? Have you thought about making a set of snap filters? I don't know if TikTok lets third party play in their, in their zone, but have you thought about going into the other apps and saying we're, we're bringing some of our technology here? Well, it's interesting on the augmented, augmented reality side, you know, we are making a lot of the tools. We're always doing like the picks and shovels of these mediums. And you know, we've done a lot of work there and we have approached partners who say to us, hey, you know, we want your creators to create for our new mediums because otherwise our mediums are going to fall flat. Mm-hmm. I mean, AR is never going to be interesting until it's richly filled with interactive, amazing, engaging, entertaining content, Right. And how are you going to do that unless you have the millions of people who are the best creators in the world producing for that medium? So we have had some conversations there. As a platform agnostic player, I think that our role is to say, hey, you know, you're a small business. You want to make your ad or your your engaging content. You want it to be on TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat and YouTube and Facebook and Pinterest. You shouldn't have to do it all over in each place. You should just be able to f- save it in all those formats. We should do the AI magic to like just make that happen for you. And then you should just be able to publish directly from our product. Like I think that would be the holy grail. So there's a split there that I think is really interesting. You're describing the small business owner themselves or a creator themselves. At the same time, right, you came to Adobe because you were the CEO of Behance. Adobe still runs Behance. It's a networking platform for creatives. You sell subscriptions on it in a sort of a Patreon kind of way. You're announcing some updates here at Max to make it easier to find jobs. What's the split there between doing it yourself and then going on a platform like Behance, looking at a bunch of creatives and hiring them? What we're seeing increasingly is both. People go and they commission or they get UI kits or they commission people to do original work for them. And then they use those as templates and starters for, you know, other derivations and evolutions of that content over time. I think that creativity will always be a collaborative discipline. And one of the things I love about Behance is just how many people in like the far corners of the world have expertise in certain areas that just are superpowers for you wherever you are. Some of the best motion graphics designers, you know, I have ever found were in Central and Eastern Europe, you know, in these small little towns. And I don't know how they became so great, but they're such a resource. And typically they would work for a headhunter who would work for an agency, who would work for a bigger agency, who would work for a brand. But now the brand can find that person directly and kind of have them on retainer to do all kinds of cool stuff. So we're seeing it happen all the time. I think you'll always see a mixture of both. Do you foresee a world in which these specialized creators become in, like an independent army of freelancers? Do you, do you see creative moving out of the agency or the companies themselves? A hundred percent. Why? Because the natural inclination of all of us is to kind of work for ourselves to some extent, and especially a creative. It's like, I want to choose my own work. I want to choose my own clients. I want to work on my own terms. And so the better and better you are, the more likely it is that you should have that future In the old days, when no one could find you and you can get attribution for your work, you had to work for an agency. You always had to be in that chain. But now if you can get attribution directly for your work and the spotlight that you deserve, you can work directly for whoever and and, and on your own terms. And by the way, I know we're about to get into some of the NFT stuff, but it's interesting to see the digital artist be in some ways 
at the mercy of circumstance and always at the end of that chain to suddenly monetizing their work directly, both directly through relationships like we were describing, as well as by menting their work and having it collected by others. Yeah, that's. I want to make sure we we spend some real time on NFTs. That's that's where I was headed. But before I do that, I just that has a big implication for Adobe's business, right? Adobe's business right now is expensive creative cloud subscriptions. You often, I'm assuming, CIOs are some of your biggest customers at, at big companies. They're buying corporate enterprise licenses. As all those people move and they become freelance or they start doing it themselves at smaller businesses. How are you thinking about Adobe's model changing? It's funny. I mean, I always think about our business as, to, you know, our customers are creative professionals. The IT department will buy whatever tools they want to use. But <laughs> at the end of the day, that's like, a very they're the ones. <laughs> optimistic read on the relationship between creative professionals and IT, but I, I buy it. Yeah, I mean, they, they do. I mean, it's, you, no one's going to tell their, you know, their designer that you, um, you know, we're not going to pay for the tool you want to use. And, you know, that hurts us and helps us, right? It depends on what segment of the of the market we're talking about. Um, but the truth is, is, you know, that we need to ultimately empower creative people and teams to work together. While you're saying that it will be more, you know, there'll be more independent professionals and less like people in design organizations or agencies. You know, I think it's more on the agency side that you're, what you're saying is true than in the creative departments and companies. I actually think companies are realizing design is a competitive advantage. So they're bringing people in-house. Yeah. Nevertheless, they're also working as teams. So a lot of the individuals of the world that are working on these incredible you know, animations or editing projects with a product like Frame.io, they might be distributed freelancers, but they are working as a team. So they need enterprise-level collaboration capabilities, even if they are, in fact, individuals. We're going to stop right here because when we come back, we're going to talk about NFTs and the technology Adobe is using to verify creators. Remember, NFTs are when you buy a link on the blockchain that says you own a piece of digital art. The actual art is still just a JPEG or something, which can get copied. That's the root of my skepticism, but Scott and I talked it over. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back. 
All right, let's talk about NFTs. I've made everybody wait long enough. We've been hinting at this <laughs> conversation. You are very bullish on NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Uh, I have a quote here from a Medium post that you wrote. The NFT world is likely the greatest unlock of artist opportunity in 100 plus years. This isn't a suboptimal or fringe version of the real world art economy. It is a vastly improved one. I would say I'm maybe less bullish on NFTs, but I, tell me why you think they're so revolutionary. And let me be clear. I am not suggesting that the current boom of people trading them and buying them and selling them and these series and all that stuff is here to stay. In fact, my opinion would be that there's going to be more crashes before more booms, right? However, I have just never seen a more empowering and better aligned system for creativity than NFTs. You make an NFT, you um, not only get the primary sale revenue of it, but then you also, based on the contract you're using, can get a percentage of every secondary sale forever. That blows out of the water any other form of art and galleries and anything else of that matter. The attribution is always there for you. You always have a connection to your collectors. Again, doesn't exist in the real world with artists. Very good luck if you can even ever meet the artist that made your work. I mean, just when you go down the line, it's just like better, 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 better. And what it's incentivizing is creativity. Artists are realizing, oh my goodness, like I should make these NFTs that have this nature to them and I can airdrop new versions of this NFT to my collectors, just surprising them, delighting them, and I can have a relationship with them. They can even influence the future of my collection. There's a large rabbit hole that we won't have time to go down, but suffice to say, NFTs represent a way of distributing and, you know, collectors owning creativity as a form of cultural flex, as a form of membership, you know, as a form of um, patronage, you know, and it's just, uh, I think it's early days. So let me offer you the, the pushback on that. Yep. Because I, I buy it, and I, I particularly the secondary sale thing, I think has never been possible before. That is all very interesting. The pushback I would give you is that NFTs aren't actually the work, right? They're a pointer on the blockchain to someone else's website where the work lives. I think it is very amusing that people are like angry about right click and save as like, that's very funny to me. Just if you take a step back, like the fact that that is the problem in the NFT world is like <laughs> deeply funny. It's still not the work, right? We're still creating all the value around the work itself and not reasserting the value of the work in a way that a painting is inherently worth, like worth something, or even a CD is inherently worth something because the media and the, and the art have, have merged. How do you solve that problem? Because I think that's the thing that's always going to be confusing for people. It's always going to be the blocker. Well, two comments on that first. You know, one is um, a philosophical one, and then one is very specifically what Adobe is doing to help solve this problem. But on the first side, I would just say that NFTs is, is, is really, it's really about identity, right? You are defined by the stuff you collect, by the art on your walls, by the clothes you wear. You know, any, any pair of shoes you buy is probably $3 of materials and $97 of virtual good <laughs> that is, you know, ascribed to the brand. And it's there. Why are you paying that ridiculous premium? It's because you're buying a virtual good that helps define your identity. But the thing that we really want in our identity, everyone really wants, is authenticity. And so the idea of knowing and being able to demonstrate that whatever you have, those, you know, those digital shoes you're wearing in Fortnite or whatever, are authentic 
is like absolutely hard coded into identity, which is an age old thing. Like people have always wanted to be authentic and everyone's always been afraid of being a fraud. So, you know, there's that that we're capitalizing on in the NFT space that I think helps address your, your comment. But from Adobe's perspective, we're seeing this right click and save, you know, and mint thing and saying, wow, like if, if so many of these NFTs are made within our products and if we can match the person who makes and actually pushes the pixels to the person who mints it, then we can actually solve that attribution gap. You know, you know who minted it forever on the blockchain, but you don't know who created it forever on the blockchain. And so it was this crazy thing. For the last few years, we've been working on something called the Content Authenticity Initiative, which, in te- which originally was intended to help people know, you know, if a piece of media that you saw, for example, on, on your guys' website, if, if it was actually edited by someone on your staff or if it was edited by some unattributed person. And that helps me determine whether I can trust the, the video or, 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 or image. And so we're going to use that same technology, but we are basically embedding it into our products um, when you're minting NFTs. And then we are putting it onto the blockchain in a open source way that is by no means DRM or anything like that. Like anyone, including competitors, can do this. And then we're working with the you know, open seas of the world to surface that information with the NFT forevermore, wherever it's displayed on the block, you know, from powered on the blockchain. So in other words, you will be able to see an NFT and not only see who minted it, but also see some attribution for who created it. And I think that solves that problem. So I make my own CryptoPunk in Photoshop. I hit the yep. button. The technology you developed, I believe it was with Twitter and the New York Times, to authenticate yep. that a picture was a picture from the New York Times. Yep. Comes into play, add some verification to my CryptoPunk, and yep. then mint the CryptoPunk, I sell it somewhere. And if someone right-clicks it and saves it and tries to remint it as a different NFT, my attribution comes along for the ride? Well, actually, what happens is if, if someone copies it, they will have been the minter of it, but they won't have the cryptographic signature of, the, of being the creator of it. So what it will do is it will validate that you were the creator. It won't validate that they weren't the creator. So imagine a world where you favor buying NFTs from artists with a cryptographic signature that you know that they actually made it as opposed to one who doesn't have that cryptographic signature. It's sort of like believing news from a website, from a, from a Twitter account that has a verification badge versus not. Yeah. Like anyone can go on Twitter and repaste anything from anywhere. But if it doesn't have a verification badge, you start to be skeptical of it. I think similarly in the NFT space, if I just get a crypto prunk, but it doesn't have a cryptographic signature of the creator of Larva Labs, I'm going to be like, well, wait a second. How do I really know that they made this? So is that the combination of NFTs, content authenticity? You're trying to create like a new set of customer norms in the art world, right? You're you're checking for validation. That kind of matches like traditional art world where you have people who come in and say this painting is real. You're trying to create that kind of more digitally? It's actually, you know, in my own career, like my quest since 2005 has been to help foster attribution in the creative world. I just simply believe that when people get credit for their work, they get opportunity and it's the best thing for creative meritocracy. So fast forward now, NFT boom, tons of people taking other people's work and minting it and just trying to get away with it. And I'm saying, wow, like this blockchain thing is great but you can only track back to the original minter, not the creator. If we can cryptographically signature the artist and the actual provenance of the object, like literally, like what layers, what pixels, where the sources came from and everything, that 
illuminates a massive gap in this new digital kind of collectibles world that I think could be very empowering to artists, could make sure that we flip the model and sort of say, hey, I only want NFTs that I know were created by the original artists. And to your point, that's what galleries and art authenticators are there for. But they're not even able to do it with 100% precision. I think we can. So I buy it. But again, here, here's the pushback that I see. That is a huge amount of control. And art is usually at its best when it's pushing back on control and pushing back on the norms. And so, I agree. Yeah. right. I mean, there's, I'm going to tape a banana to the wall and then yep. someone's going to eat it is like, this is a real thing that happened. If you're listening to this, this is a real thing that happened at Art Basel in Miami. I, um, I remember. And that is what, what is that is breaking a norm and then another person breaking a norm. Yeah. And that created an, a moment in the art world. You put computers in charge of everything. They don't allow for norm breaking in that way, <laughs> right? They tend to enforce the rules very strictly. How, w- right. how do you see that dynamic? Because that that's the part that's scary to me is like basically yeah. we're creating a kind of a massive distributed DRM system that limits what people can do. What's important here is that it's, it is open source. And by the way, you can attribute it to anything. So any name, like you, your pseudonym can be your attribution point. So I think that you'll actually continue to see creatives be very creative with how attribution is used. I don't think Banksy would suddenly attribute it to his name and his Adobe ID, <laughs> right? I mean, it's going to be like... Do you think Banksy has like, an Adobe ID? Do you know who Banksy oh, is? <laughs> um, no. But, uh, <laughs> no, that, you, this is a radio show. Scott thought about that for a minute. I was like, yeah, no, Banksy is <laughs> very telling. There was that time in that British pub. But anyways, no, I, I think that it's about making sure that people can get attribution if they want it in a way that is like very, very like consistent with the decentralized notion of you know, no one single player, no single source of truth. But people just should have this form. And that's why we made it open source. And we tried to get as many other folks involved as, as we can. And listen, it's early days, right? But I do believe it's a problem that needs to be solved. And I, and I haven't seen a better solution yet. But this is why we're working on it. So do you think eventually Photoshop is going to have, you know, in its list of export options, like TIFF, JPEG, <laughs> NFT? We are going to have a prepare as NFT option by the end of this month. And what, what does that look like in practice? Prepare as NFT and then it goes where? That's very exciting, by the way. Yeah, so what it will do is it will be able to take whatever you're working on and it will assist you in packaging it and, and, and preparing it along with the attribution capabilities that we just discussed for some of the you know, popular kind of minting platforms and blockchains out there. And again, this is in preview. You know, it's not something that we're you know, gold standard on yet in terms of readiness. We are just trying to reach out, you know, re- respond to like customers' desires. So a lot of our customers are like, listen, I make stuff in your tools. I minted and I'm proud of that. But then other people mint the same stuff. Like I want the ability to show that I was the one who did it. And we're like, great, we'll give you the ability to prepare as NFT. We'll cryptographically sign it in an open source way for you to be able to have that. We'll work with the open marketplaces of NFTs to surface that information alongside an NFT with any cryptographic search signature around the actual creator. And hopefully that will help solve your problem. Have the marketplaces bought onto this? Are they going to support it right away? They're very excited about it because this is one of their biggest problems is everyone's right-clicking and minting other cool stuff and they just have no way. I mean, the blockchain starts from the moment of minting. So there's just no way of knowing whether this was right-clicked and saved or created from a, you know, from a product or not. So 
um, from down to the pixels. So that's that's something that they want us to help them solve. I feel like we're right back to where we started with file formats and PSDs. I feel like every time I talk to you, we end up in the weeds of the PSD file format. How does this change that file format? Is this once it's signed, you can't change it again? Do you do you have to change the format? Where does it live on the blockchain? Yeah, no changes to the format. And the cryptographic signature points to a IPFS kind of powered system that shows you the attribution data. But again, it's like a decentralized storage source and it's a um, and it's a open source framework so that again anyone can cryptographically sign anything from within the tool that's used to create something and then leverage the same system you know so that, that that's great because we don't I mean we don't want this to be anything that is proprietary to Adobe or part of one of our formats like that would kind of negate the purpose what happens if I want to take one of these signed things that's minted and I don't know remix it and post it to Instagram as a commentary on the art. Is there any place here where that stuff is prevented from happening? Because that, you know, that that's just been happening with digital art in a variety of ways over time. It's a good question. Listen, like we're we're so early days in this wild yeah. wild west, like I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think Instagram is surfacing attribution data, you know, um, from But, gr- but this gr- is gr- what I mean about computers yet. being really good at this, right? right. Instagram has a copyright law obligation and people fight over it and they file the claims. Yeah, DMCA stuff and whatever else. I mean, I think just this week, Emily Ratajkowski and Dua Lipa got sued by paparazzi for posting photos that paparazzi had taken, which is a whole other right. conversation. But right there, there's already a set of laws that control what you can post or mm-hmm. might get taken down from Instagram. Once you start creating this kind of parallel digitized system, that mm-hmm. stuff gets automatic real fast. So I'm wondering if you see that that line yet, or you're saying it's so early we can't know. Yeah, I think it's too early to know, but I, I always kind of go back, I go back to the primal motivations here. We just know that creative opportunities are at the mercy of circumstance unless they get attribution for their work. And we know that you know any form of monetization, you know, typically is taking advantage of the creative, and now we're trying to shift the power into the creator's hands. I, I think that obviously blockchain does that in all the ways we just discussed. I feel like there's also problems to be solved around attribution, which we're trying to solve. And then as the desires come to remix and leverage and use, we want to play a role in that. I mean, we have a huge business with our Adobe stock business. And this is people selling content that they make or shoot for other people to use with various levels of licensing. I think that blockchain is a great area to explore on that front as well. And we're seeing multimedia types of creations, you know, uh, come out now that, require more types of stock from more sources with more, you know, different various ways of compensating the artists. So it's exciting. I mean, it's really like a wild, wild west. I'm so happy we're now beyond this traditional kind of world of either a gallery selling it in their on their wall or it's not mm-hmm. valid. Like we've, we've moved beyond this. And I think that's very exciting. Let me ask you about the content authenticity initiative in its original form. Mm-hmm. In its original form, again, it was you and the Times and Twitter saying we want to make sure that what you see is real, a noble goal. You're announcing some updates to that here at Max. How is it going? Is it is it working? Is it taken off? Are you are you ready to deploy it widely? The progress we've made is really around the partnership and the consortium of companies that are focused on this and trying to figure out what the standards should be and how to how to reveal that information, you know, in a very open source, accessible way. 
what we have also been doing in, in tandem is using Photoshop as a reference app to some degree for how this should be done. So that we haven't even really launched that, and that's that's going to come out in preview at at Max. So this month is that goes in, and that's we start to sort of see what how that works. Now, of course, it's also chicken and the egg, right? You need enough people using that for there to be enough reason to surface on a network like Twitter or New York Times or Behance, for that matter, the attribution data from a CAI, like a, we call it content credentials, from an asset that was made in one of our products using content credentials. So what we're also going to use as a reference app is Behance. So we'll have our own two reference apps where it's like people can publish with content credentials in Photoshop, people can surface through content credentials in Behance, and then we can leverage that to show all these other players out there who want to solve this problem, hey, we've got the APIs, it's ready to go, here's what we're doing, like, here's how it works. And so if you're another creator tool on the market, leverage what we're doing in Photoshop as a reference app. And if you're a Twitter or Facebook or someone else, leverage what we're doing in Behance. So let me give you a really dumb example. I was thinking about this last night. I'm a Packers fan. <laughs> Yesterday, Aaron Rodgers played the Bears. And the cameras on the sideline caught him screaming, I own you, at Bears fans, which was very funny. And I encourage everyone to, A, root for the Packers, and B, watch that clip. Fox got it, right? Like, they caught the audio. They would have put out that clip and marked it with CAI. They would have said, we're the creators of this clip. It's real. But the ones that went viral were people, like, like pointing their iPhone at the screen. And then there, there's definitely one where people went and tweaked the audio so you could hear it more clearly. Do they get to play in this world where you say, all I did was tweak the audio, or I just pointed my iPhone at the TV? Yeah. It's the real thing coming from Fox. Or do those kind of get secondary status here, and the one from Fox itself gets the, the tag? With the reminder that the purpose of this is to help the viewer determine whether they can trust what they're watching, right? Mm -hmm. In a perfect world, the piece that is captured by Fox actually says whatever Canon da, 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 camera registered to Fox Incorporated captured this with this lens and whatever on this date at this location. And you're seeing that footage. It was, you know, edited a little bit and it was cut down using Premiere Pro and there was a filter added and the color correction was using DaVinci or whatever. And, and so you can kind of see the lineage of that asset and you know, as a news agency, as a, as a viewer, that this is trustworthy content. Going with that logic, it would also say the same for me pointing my phone at the, at the TV. It would say, Scott Belsky captured this with whatever phone, with whatever tool, and edited it or didn't edit it and posted it. And again, this information is just helpful for the viewer to determine whether they can trust it or not. Imagine if that video also goes around, but someone dubs in something else that's being yelled, right? And you're like, whoa, that does, can, can that be true? And then you click on it, and there's no attribution data for it. And you're like, hmm. Well, everyone else, you know, all the news outlets who posted this clip had attribution data with the little verification, and this person didn't. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some skepticism on this one. I think that that's where we're trying to get. And like, I don't see a better solution, unfortunately, than that. Like, Obviously, I'd love to have a true and false meter for every piece of content published in the world, but that's not going to happen. And technology just keeps getting better. So I, people are going to have to start discerning based on whether they know the provenance of the asset or not. Does that require a network connection, right? You're saying this is happening on IPFS. It's happening on somewhere on a blockchain. Can I see that data if I don't have Wi-Fi? Uh, well, any of the content I assume you're consuming on any of these social platforms is being delivered to you through a network connection. So the information around authenticity that accompanies that, yeah, yeah. that media does require a connection. I'm just curious because it... Yeah. 
we're like completely disintermediating the file from the device yeah. at some point. And yeah, yeah. I don't know where the last step is, but this feels like closer to the last step. Yeah. I mean, there's other technologies that are doing other kinds of things, right? Yeah. Of like hit, hiding little things in the image and whatever else, but that becomes a cat and mouse game. Yeah. So I use the Aaron Rodgers example because it is very low stakes, right? He, it doesn't really matter what he's screaming at Bears fans. Like it happened. There are much higher stakes examples I could use. There's an election coming up. Do you think this stuff is going to be ready for the next election? That's a good question. I think um, what I do think will happen, unfortunately, is that there will be some specific things that happen that really diminish trust. I mean, I think we've seen it a few of these examples before, but we haven't, you know, fortunately, countries haven't gone to war yet. People haven't been traumatically affected yet by fake media in large scale. And I just fear that it's a when, not if sort of scenario. And when that stuff happens, I think that everyone's going to be grasping for ways to distinguish between true and false. And I think there's going to be a, a need for it. So, I mean, this all started because our, our leadership team said, hey, we have an opportunity to be part of the solution, or, or responsibly rather, not just an opportunity to be part of the solution. The opportunity of like creating things like Content Aware Phil. And I remember when I announced Content Aware Phil in After Effects three years ago on stage and showed a video where you could literally remove an object or a person from video and even remove the footsteps and the dust in their walk from an entire piece of video with AI, it sort of begs the question of, oh goodness, like what are the implications for this? Now that could have always been done. Like people could have done it the painstaking way. We just are trying to save creatives days and days of work by being able to do these sorts of things. And there's obviously many legitimate, I remember when the coffee cup was left in a Game of Thrones episode and there was this mm -hmm. like, you know, like how, how do you remove that? <laughs> And it was like, hey, we have a feature for that. You can just remove the coffee cup from the entire scene and no one's going to ever notice the Starbucks you know, cup. So I think that there's really great legitimate use case for that. But with that opportunity comes the responsibility of helping people know what's real. And, and that's the type of stuff that this is meant to solve. Do you think that that affects your roadmap? Do you ever, when the next version of Content Aware Phil comes up, do you as the decision maker say, that's too far until we build the trust tools? Listen, if everyone is working on these things, it's not like we're the only company trying to figure out how to remove stuff from video or imagery. Like mm -hmm. this is a popular capability and we have to do it for our customers just like our peers and you know are doing it for their customers in the industry. I think that it's a statement about Silicon Valley as a whole that we tend to have teams that are very creative about what could go right in the future and don't spend time being creative about what could go wrong in the future. And I think that if the early groups of product leaders and designers at Facebook, for example, sat around trying to brainstorm what could go wrong with their technology years, if not decades from now, maybe they would have built the platform differently. I'm hoping that we have those conversations now, and I'm hoping that we spend the effort and cycles to innovate in ways that may or may not catch on You know, in the industry. I think it's important to do so in an open source way, because then we can help the whole industry do this. And of course, we benefit from by being leaders in this. And I hope it's something that the networks and other partners in this space start to prioritize as well, because we can build it. But if you know companies like P Twitter or Pinterest or whoever are not surfacing this information, it doesn't really work either. All right. Well, I think that's a pretty excellent place to stop. Last question. It's a softball everybody gets at the end. We're obviously talking around Adobe Max. You've announced a lot of stuff. But what's next for Adobe? Where do you see the next turn? 
for the stuff you're working on? Well, I'm very committed to making Creative Cloud as much about collaboration as it is about creativity. I feel like anyone working alone these days is working at a massive disadvantage. You want to leverage other people's assets. You want to be able to frictionlessly collaborate with others. You know, that's why we're, of course, bringing our products to the web. That's why we're building all these services like libraries, but also we just announced at Max Creative Cloud Spaces and the Canvas as new forms of collaboration for creative teams. I think we have uh, an opportunity to make creativity a collaborative discipline that is far more inclusive and, um, and really it kind of transcends what we've ever kind of seen before, which is the ultimate measure of the work that we do. So that's what gets me excited every day these days. Yeah. Well, Scott, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. I feel like I could definitely spend another hour on either NFTs or the future of computing, but we got to wrap it up. Thank you so much for being on Decoder. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Scott Belsky for taking time to talk today. Thank you for listening. Really hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton Simone, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino. We are edited by Callie Wright. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time.